Now, Tim Bowler has written around 20 books for teenagers with his first novel, Midget, published in 1994. He's won 15 awards, including the prestigious Carnegie Medal for his novel, River Boy, has been described as the master of the psychological thriller, one of the truly individual voices in British teenage fiction. So for our this morning's person segment today, we're joined on the line by Tim Bowler. And it's a great privilege to introduce you then as one of the UK's most compelling and original writers for teenagers. Thank you for coming on the line. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, first off, could you just tell us what prompted you to, to write books aimed at teenagers, uh, young adults, rather than uh, what perhaps many aspiring authors think about the uh, adult audience? I don't know. It's, it's accidental in a way. Uh, the first book I wrote, which you mentioned just now, Midget, um, it just seemed to be geared towards a 15-year-old boy. I didn't think it would have worked as an adult story. Uh, and I found it so compelling when I wrote it, uh, so challenging to try to get the voice right of a 15-year-old boy, that I, I carried on writing that way. I think that particular age range between... If you're writing about people aged between 13 and 16, they're, they're sort of like... Um, they're a mixture of voices. They're, like, they're, not, they're not children, they're not adults. They're somewhere in between. They're a, a child falling asleep and an adult waking up. And somehow, as a writer, you have to address both of those, those voices, I think. And that was a challenge. And they also go through tremendous changes, psychological, emotional, sexual, uh, um, and intellectual changes during those periods, perhaps more than any other time in their lives. If you're going to write about those children, or okay, I'm calling them children, if you're going to write about those young people, uh, then you've, you've got to work very hard to get the voice right, and I think I enjoyed that, so I carried on doing it. And that's not to say, of course, that adult readers can't enjoy your work either. All of us who are adults have once been teenagers. Um, and, and is that where you also draw on your ideas from, your own childhood and teenage years? To a large extent, yes, I think so. Um, people often say, how on earth do you manage to, to identify with young people? But of course, I had been a young person. Um, and, uh, and yes, it is partly based on memory, but at the same time, it's also just important to remember that even though you're writing about young people, the art of fiction is the same whoever you're writing about. If you're writing, you're, as a writer, you're almost always writing about someone you have never been. So although I've been a 14-year-old boy or a 15-year-old boy, um, like many of the characters in my stories, I haven't been that particular person. So every time you write a story, whether it's about an adult or a young person, you are always trying to empathise with someone you have never been, and that is the challenge of fiction. Let's talk about that award-winning River Boy, which explores coping with life and death in uh, really a haunting tale. Thank what, you. What prompted that? Well, I, start, I had written two other books before that, uh, my first two novels, Midgets and Dragon's Rock, and I just wanted to write something very different to begin with. I wasn't really sure where I was going with it. I actually just put down two uh, contrasting characters, uh, a young girl, I thought a young girl of 15, and then someone completely opposite, a, a crusty old grandfather. I actually didn't know where I was going with that. And one day I, I came across a picture, a very haunting picture of a river, and somehow um, that those two things came into my mind. I ended up with four ingredients, a young girl, a grandfather, a picture, and a river, a painting and a river. And somehow those things came together. And so I started just working through that. I didn't know at the time that the river was going to be a spiritual metaphor. I didn't know that the painting was going to be part of the, the grandfather's own way of expressing himself. And nor did I know that the grandfather in the story was going to be 
in some ways representative of the grandfather I lost when I was 14, my father's father. And when my father, my, when my father lost his father, my grandfather, and he died, um, I didn't go to the funeral. I was very upset, I remember. And I think in a way, if, without wanting to overdo this, I, I think in a way, writing Riverboy was a way in which I was trying to go to my grandfather's funeral, I think. Uh, it was a way of saying goodbye to someone I never really said goodbye to mm. as a young man. Uh, so I think that's probably where it came from. But, of course, when one writes, one's not necessarily conscious of that. You're just, I was just conscious of trying to tell a story. It deepened into those things as the writing went on. It's so interesting to hear that background. Also, to think of a story as existing and, and just unfolding even to you as you're writing it. Um, yes. It's fascinating. Yes. But why do you think River Boy has proved to be so successful, including here in South Korea, where the novel, since uh, it was published in 2007, October of that year, more than 300,000 copies had been sold until late 2008. So that was uh, a pretty fast-selling uh, novel. Yes, yes, I know. It's, it's astonished me, really. I've, I've thought about it very hard, um, because when I wrote it, I just thought, well, this is a very quiet little book. I, it may be a, will be popular with a few people, but there's, there's not a lot of action in it from the point of view of, you know, boy, what boys might want, for example. Uh, I thought it's, quite, it's very mystical. I thought I didn't know why. I think, uh, certainly in Korea, I've been to Korea um, a number of times. I, I love Korea, and I love Korean people. Uh, and I, One of the things I've noticed since I've been in, when I've traveled to Korea is, there's a huge emphasis on family in Korea. Um, I think family is very much at the heart of the story. And not just the grandfather-granddaughter relationship, there's the whole thing with the grandfather and the you know, the, the girl's just, just his father. There's that in it as well. Um, and I think that's an important part of, of Korean society, and that, that might be one of the things. But the other thing is, I think, that, of course, it tells a universal story, how we cope with loss. And from a young person's perspective, I, I suppose you could say that the majority of young people, their first encounter with, with, with bereavement is of a grandparent. Of course, there are exceptions. but So, in a way, what... Jess is experiencing is something which many young people her age will be experiencing as I was at, at that age. And finally, I would say in careers specifically, um, I think that um, one of the things I, I felt about Korean uh, readers when I was out there is that I think partly for cultural reasons, perhaps with, a, um, with a, 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 for spiritual reasons as well, I think Korean readers, they just get, they just understand metaphors like rivers, mountains, trees, lakes, those kinds of things. I think in the West, perhaps, Perhaps, uh, I'm generalizing, I know, there's a tendency to intellectualize things too much. I never found that. What I loved about Korean readers when they, when they write to me especially is there's a very intuitive understanding of what the book is about. And uh, maybe that's something to do with it. But to be honest with you, it's a mystery. Like most fiction, it's a mystery why one thing works and another thing doesn't. Yeah, and of course, as you set out to write it, that wasn't really planned out, as you explained. No. Have no. you had it ever work the other way, though, where you just start writing and, and maybe even get um, a few thousand words in and just think this just isn't working and you just abandon it? And, and, and how do you make that decision? Well, I, I get the first part of what you say, and not the second. What happens with me is I start writing, as you just say, almost always based on a single idea. I hardly ever like to plan my things in too much detail. I don't really, I like to just get the, the initial idea and follow it, as I did with, these, with Riverboy. Um, and all my novels really have unfolded that way, even the Blade series, which is a huge, great thing, that unfolded the same way. 
But what I have do find is I start off following these ideas, and usually I get what you just described, which is I start to read the stuff and think this is this isn't working. It's not going very well. What I don't do then is abandon it, though. I may go back and read and start it again. I may throw stuff away, but I don't give up on the idea because what I've learned is that um, very often the uh, the deepest ideas come from the deepest places, and you have to write a lot of stuff before you actually get to that. It's, it's quite common for me to write uh, 10 or 12 pages of rubbish, but then the third, 13th page comes out and I start to think, oh, hang on, hang on, this is interesting. So I think you have to be patient with writing. It's like anything else in, in, in art. You have to take your time over it. Occasionally, you will get some chapters and some, some parts of a book which come out smelling sweetly right from the start, but very often, especially in the early stages of, of, of the story's organic growth, very often you find that um, it, it, it takes time and there's a lot of trial and error. Uh, I know there are probably writers who just, they plan it all and off they go and it comes out beautifully, but I'm not one of those. I'm a, you could say I'm a messy creator um, and I take a lot of time and write a lot of stuff which I throw away and I'm comfortable with that because I know that ultimately I will get there if I don't give up. And I, and I think a lot of the best writers um, do share at least a part of that uh, with you, uh, especially with, with, with these very creative novels. Um, this idea, as we touched on before, of there already being a story there that you are drawing out, that you are taking part in the creation of. But what it's, happened... It's exactly... Sorry, I beg your pardon. Forgive me for interrupting. I was only going to say I entirely agree. It's a bit like the the sculpture where inside the block of wood is the finished thing and you have to chip away the stuff to get at the finished thing inside. Um, but I was just going to ask you what happens on those days when you don't feel so creative but you still need to write? On the days when you don't feel creative, you still write. You sit down and you do your words. It's a, you, I mean, I, I discovered this over many, many years of writing. Um, I've been writing for, uh, well, over half a century now. And um, I would say that uh, it's astonishing how many days I, I've got nothing to say. I, I sit down at the desk thinking I've got nothing to say. And so I then write something. I realize that I did have something to say after all. We don't always know. There's a lot of stuff going along uh, over the, tur- sort of a lot of turbulent stuff going on the surface of our minds, the business of living, the business of paying mortgages and doing stuff, doing, going shopping, all that stuff. Buried underneath that is is the story that's trying to be told. Just because we can't feel it necessarily consciously doesn't mean it's there. I mean, Ian Forster, a great English writer, once said that writing is like dipping a bucket down deep into the subconscious and pulling out things that are normally beyond our conscious reach. A lot of the time when you don't feel creative, that stuff's still there. The mere fact that you sat down at your desk is a way of saying, I, I know there's something there. So you have to go digging for it and, yeah. and dipping the bucket deep. That's another fantastic analogy. Um, we are just about out of time. I, I just got to ask you, while we've got you on the line, what you're working on right now. Are you very far into dipping that bucket, uh, or are you just t- <laughs> dipping your toes in, first of all? <laughs> I'm right at the end. The bucket's come up to the surface now. I've just finished a book, which I've gone to my publisher. Uh, it's called The Hunt for Billy Swift. And it's, um, it's, um, it's going to be illustrated, um, and well, assuming they accept it, I, I've, I've got to hear back from my editor, and I'm hoping very much that she likes it. But it's a, a younger, younger age range, it's, it's, it's for 9 to 12 year olds, so it's about a boy who's in a, an awful lot of trouble, and as I say, I'm hoping it's going to be illustrated, it's called The Hunt for Billy Swift, and fingers crossed, uh, assuming my editor likes it, it should come out next year. Well, we'll be hoping for success on your behalf you. as well. Thank you so much, Mr. Bowler, for joining us today. Great pleasure. Great to have you on the line. Tim Bowler, one of the UK's most accomplished and compelling authors for teenagers, dropping down in the age ranges we were just hearing there.